Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to be talking about Black Red in Forgotten Realms Limited. This is the first deck I'm taking a deep, close look at. I'm starting here because it's the best performing deck uh, out of the gates by quite a bit. It's really just like blowing everything else out of the water. Uh, I mean, among two color pairs. Uh, I believe Mono Red has better stats, but that basically only happens when the color is really wide open and a bit of an outlier. Among two color pairs, Black Red's where you want to be. And I felt like it would be just like irresponsible to the quality of drafting this format to lead with teaching people about some other deck and then maybe getting more people to draft that and then leading to fewer people drafting red black. I think that all of us drafting this format are just going to have a better time if everyone's fighting over red black to let you justify doing more different things. The drafts that I've done recently, knowing about how good red black is and just like drafting cards by the stats in 17 lands has led to just drafting red black over and over because i know that all the red black cards have much higher stats than all the other colors and then it's open anyway and while i'm recording this i literally just finished a draft where i drafted 40 red and black cards and that just like shouldn't happen it shouldn't be that easy to get these cards so i felt like the best service both to uh, my listeners in terms of having individual success as well as just like their opponents, the community at large, um, in terms of making the games more fun, would be to start with red black. I just thought it would be irresponsible to start any else. So I want to talk about how and why you should draft red black unless forced to do something else or unless strongly incentivized to do something else because you open like a really, really powerful rare. But all is equal, you should kind of just assume that you should like let the draft move you into red black. And it's not even so much about forcing, it's just the good cards are there, so you take them and you end up red black. So that's that's just kind of the like pre-show notes on like what's going on and why before I get into like what I've actually worked out here. Again, obviously, this isn't a secret, like everybody's doing well with this deck, but there's a lot of nuance and a lot of like different uh, data points to talk over and stuff. First little reminder, anyone who is a limited guru or higher on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, anyone who is interested in becoming one of those things, the notes for this show and now the notes for the previous show, uh, my overview about Forgotten Realms, those are both available on Patreon right now. Head over there, check that out if you want to follow along with the notes here. That's what's up. Now let's uh, get into it. Yeah, as I said, Black Red, best archetype by a lot. I checked this stuff yesterday, and obviously some of you, if you're not watching this live, you're hearing it even later. So some chance this has shifted a little bit, but as of my research, uh, Black Red was winning more than 3% more often than red green which was the next best performing two color pair so it really feels like a bit of a design failure in terms of just like balancing the colors in this format maybe leaning a little bit too strong on the like fundamental conceit the draft is self-correcting also notable from the like kind of overview stats is it looks like people are a little bit too willing to splash red black now it's possible basically 
uh, red black wins almost 5% more than red black with a splash. Now that might mean that uh, when you splash your deck is weaker or like you're struggling because of the mana and people are like a little bit more likely to splash than they should be. Or it might mean that people splash when red black is more contested. And so what we're seeing is just red black is better when it's open than when it's not open. So there's a little bit of noise there that you wanna be careful about, but the data does suggest that red black without a splash performs better. I would read that as be really cautious when you splash, only splash when it's really cheap, when you're really good at it. Obviously really good at it's gonna be a function of how much treasure you're making. And then when you're splashing through treasure use, you're gonna really get rewarded for keeping your splashes as light as you can. Keeping to a single card, maybe two cards is generally gonna work out better than a larger splash. Big takeaway from the data there is grain of salt, be careful with your splashes. Uh, straight red black is likely best. I kind of touched on in my last episode and maybe other people had the same instincts that I did. When I first started playing this format, I felt like I really want super low curve and very aggressive. I do still think that you wanna be pretty aggressive, but also the removal is pretty good, especially in a spot where like red and black are the best is the best deck. Those are obviously colors that have good removal. Part of why it's good is because the removal is strong. Red, black mirrors often, regardless of the format, when two red and black decks play each other, it's often gonna be a very attrition based game. That means that sometimes the game does go long and what I'm seeing is that the expensive cards are actually performing a little bit better than I expected them to based on my first experiences with the format. Where I had been kind of skewing toward, oh, you want like a rock bottom curve, I now think you do want a lot of like one and two drops, but you also want some of that top end. And what I've been doing personally is kind of like skimping on like three, four and five drops, especially four and five drops, and then putting a little bit more weight in the high impact six drops, which plays well with treasures also. So like this idea where you play like one and two drops to like get ahead, not fall behind, play on the board, generate some treasures, skip, skip ahead, play like a powerful high impact uh, six drop, on turn four or five potentially and then also just like once you get into this attrition game now you're like drawing to a more powerful library because you've filled it with some like six drops rather than filling it with like four or five drops that you might normally play so i've kind of liked playing some of those like top end commons that might be weaker in another format uh like earth cult elemental which is the six six that rolls a die and then makes players sacrifice things or Baleful Beholder, which is the 6-5 that either makes your opponent sacrifice an enchantment or gives all your creatures uh, menace until end of turn. Prioritizing putting that stuff in your deck a little bit more often than you might otherwise. Playing it over cards like the 3-5 Ogre that uh, ventures if a creature died this turn. Generally not what you should be doing in Limited, but the treasures kind of skew it a little bit. And then also the uh, nature of the situation with playing potentially a more like attrition-focused format skews that a little bit. So the top end stuff, so both like those commons and then also the uncommon dragons play a little bit better than like what your familiarity with magic and formats that don't have as many treasure producers might suggest. Few commons that we should talk about. So obviously for the most part, like red and black are good because it's just like a lot of good cards and, you know, stuff that's normally good and limited is pretty good, you know, efficient removal and everything. There are a few cards that are a little unusual, maybe cards that aren't all that similar to cards we've seen before or cards that have particularly different stats in this format than they have previous ones. I'm guessing some listeners know what I'm hinting at there. But the first card I want to talk about is Vampire Spawn. 
This is black two for a two three ETB, drain your opponent for two. And this card, at least initially, has really amazing stats. At the moment, uh, it's a somewhat small sample size. It's not seeing a ton of play relative to some of the other commons, a little underrated, but when people do play it, they've been winning at a really high rate. High enough that it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think there's some amount of variance there, but I want to talk about how I do think that this common is just really good. This is a lesson that we keep learning over and over, especially now that we have data from 17 lands stuff. I think that this is maybe a lesson that if we had had 17 lands, might have just been part of like the general zeitgeist understanding of limited for, I don't know, decades. But people are really like catching up on now that we're seeing commons that don't look that good overperforming over and over. And that's specifically the value of incidental life gain in limited. The like two, two lifelinkers keep overperforming relative to uh, expectations and how they read and what people think is going to happen. And vampire spawn just plays very similarly. There are the games that 2-2 lifelinkers just like get equipped and run away with and we like remember those and then when we go and see 2-2 lifelinkers win a lot I guess that's because sometimes we put equipment on them and they run away with the game and stuff. I think that might undersell just their floor in terms of like oh my two drop traded with your two drop and I gained two life. I think that like and I gained two life story matters quite a bit. Honestly my first experience with this was drafting 7th edition, which is the first format that I went to Infinite with drafting on Magic Online. So I drafted a lot of uh, 7th edition back in the day. 7th uh, edition was extremely weak. The first 7th edition draft that I ever played, I actually trophied after first picking, like pack one, pick one, a, uh, a giant octopus. That's blue three for a 3-3 three, three vanilla. Just, just a blue hill giant was my first pick overall in the first draft that I won in 7th edition. Now, I'm not saying that Blue Hill Giant was amazing, but I am saying that the cards in 7th edition were garbage. And even in that format where all of the cards were really, really weak, I think that this card's in 7th edition. I think so. There's this card, Serpent Warrior, uh, black 2 for a 3-3 three, three ETB lose 3 life, that was like quite overstatted at the time. Like 3 mana for a 3-3, three, three, was a really good rate. Like I said, I had success with four mana for a three, three. I tried like drafting it somewhat aggressively and playing with it. And honestly, I had really bad experiences with it and stopped playing it pretty quickly because it was just so devastating for it to get killed. And I really learned like, oh wow, this like three life where it feels like I'm just like, you know, paying this thing that doesn't matter to get out ahead. That That's like a much bigger deal than you think when you learn about like the value of like, you know, your life totals a resource and card advantage is what matters. And it feels like when you play a three, three and your opponent plays a two, two, like you're up a fraction of a card there. And so it feels like, yeah, of course I want to pay life to get up a fraction of a card, but like it was a large amount of life and a small amount of card advantage um, in terms of like, you know, it's still just one creature. It still just dies to removal spell. So vampire spawn is like at a size that's like reasonably easy to like trade with, contribute to the board, kind of just like a normal size for a three drop. And then it comes with this four life swing. And a four life swing is a big swing. And I think it's like pretty easy to underestimate that. And also like if you're getting a four life swing, deal four damage to your opponents probably better than drain them for two. But it is nice that it's like some damage, some life gain. So it kind of like plays both ways. So it's just like always good. Like you're going to care about one side of this like two life swing swap probably the hype on vampire spawn you know where it's like wow vampire spawn stats are great is it really that good i mean i'm very confident that it 
genuinely is good. Exactly how good, I can't be sure about, but like, don't sleep on Vampire Spawn. Next up, let's get to Price of Loyalty. So anyone who's even glanced at 17 lands stats for this set has to have noticed Price of Loyalty. It's the highest performing common by like 3% or something. It's in the top 10 cards overall. Its stats are just totally outlandish. Basically unprecedented for a common to be this successful. And then for it to be just like a slightly glorified threaten is just crazy, right? Like this is a card we see in every set. Its stats are never particularly great. And here it's blowing people out of the water. And it's like, what's happening here? How can price possibly be this? It has a lot of things going for it. There are good sack outlets. It's a particularly good threaten. If you spend a treasure, it gets plus two power. That's like a slightly better bonus than we often see on these cards. It will cost three mana, where a lot of the ones that we've been seeing have cost four. There's a lot going on here. And then also, you know, I just finished talking about how it's good to play big creatures because you can cast them more easily with treasures and there are like all these uncommon dragons and stuff. So like the targets for the threaten are better. The context for the threaten is good. We have all, like, it's a pretty aggressive format and we have sack outlets. So it's a lot of like different things coming together to make this card perform uh, better than it usually does. Is price of loyalty actually this good? Are these stats an outlier? Will it correct? It does win that much. I, I, I believe that. Should you draft it as if it's just like, oh, this is a card that wins 63% of the time? Like, should you draft it ahead of the rares that win 62% of the time? No. I don't, I don't think that you should. The other thing that we see with the price loyalty stats, it's game and hand win rate is specifically the stat that I'm looking at that's this good. But if you just look at the number of times it appears in hand, that's much lower. A lot of the price loyalties open in a draft don't end up in decks because people just like don't get sack outlets, don't have a deck where they think it's going to be good and don't play it. So if you just imagine like any card that is strong, but is only played in the decks where it's best, that's going to inflate the stats. You just cut out the bottom end of that card's range, it's going to inflate it a little bit. And then here, the best part of its range is correlated with stuff that's good to do anyway. The sack outlet cards aren't just good with price. The sack outlets are just independently good. So when your deck is good at doing this thing, your deck is also just good. Like that's just an indicator of strength. So there is a lot of like context and noise that's making it look better than it is. But that said, it still is good. So then the question is, well, how highly should I prioritize it? Because like, I've often given the advice that if you, that like game in hand win rate is the best shortcut for how highly should you draft this thing. Now, obviously we know that there are exceptions. We saw that with the lesson and learn stuff. Um, well, specifically the lessons in Strixhaven where you had to just ignore the game in hand win rate. This isn't that. This isn't a card that only enters your hand when you want it to. This is just like a normal magic card that you put in your deck. It's a card where the win percentage that we're seeing is contextual. You, you only actualize those returns in certain contexts. And you need to make sure that you're only prioritizing it as if it's going to win that much when you're going to have a deck that gives you that context. And if you don't already have it, then you need to also factor in the potential like cost or opportunity cost of making sure that you end up with a deck that's going to give you those returns. Then what I was wondering is, well, what context do we need to get that win rate? So I asked Serkovich, uh, who moved the uh, question up the chain to the other people at 17 lands, 
and they were able to do me a favor. You know, they, they presumably appreciate that I, I mention them a lot. I, I'm a supporter of theirs on Patreon. I think their website's great. So they helped me out here and they were able to pull some data for me. What I was wondering about was the um, stats on price of loyalty as a function of the number of sack outlets in your deck. In general, everything that we know about threatens is the best thing to do with them is take their creature and then sacrifice it rather than giving it back. So I figured what we need to make this card to like get what we're seeing out of this card is probably a way to sacrifice it. So, you know, I know that when people play this, they do well with it, but I don't know how many they need to like put it in their deck to see that happen. So in order to get a reasonable sample size, we have to look at the win rate when played rather than the uh, game in hand win rate here. We're looking at a slightly different number than I'm used to looking for. So to avoid comparing to apples to oranges, whatever, we need to make sure that we're looking at the right stats. So while price of loyalties game in hand win rate on 17 lands as of the last time I checked was 62.5, 63%, something like that, kind of depends on whether you're filtering for red, black and stuff. The games played win rate um, so this is how often do you win when price of loyalty is in your deck? Overall is 59.5. So 59.5% win rate uh, when you play price of loyalty. If you play price of loyalty with no sack outlets in your deck, one price of loyalty, zero sack outlets, that's 53% win rate. So 53% win rate is a little bit below baseline win rate for the format, which I'm guessing is around 55, but I didn't double check that. So one price, not great. Second price with no sack outlet, 54.9. Third price with no sack outlet, 57.1. So there's this weird, the more prices you play, the more you win, even when you don't have a sack outlet going on, which suggests the card is actually good when you don't have a sack outlet, but not very good. It's not going up a lot. Your win percentage is still starting like below average or whatever. Also, I'm guessing the sample size is here pretty small. With one sack outlet, uh, there's like a little outlier here where one sack outlet, one price goes to 49.6%. And then like two price, one sack outlet is just like a fraction of a percent higher than one sack outlet. And then there's another like random, like if you have three price one, someone on 40%, small sample size, whatever. I don't want to go through like a million different numbers. It's going to become gibberish when I'm just saying numbers, all different, like numbers that mean different things and stuff. Long and short of this, when you have two sack outlets, you end up with numbers comparable to the overall win rate per price. For example, when you have one price, two sack outlets, you're at 59.3, two price, two sack outlets, 60.8. That's the same kind of range as the 59.9 of the overall when people are playing it. So, which is to say, I think on average, when people put price in their deck, they probably have two sack outlets. Sometimes they have more, sometimes they have less. But as far as like, if you're thinking about like, okay, is this price really going to get me that 63%? I think you should only view it as exercising caution and think of it as at least two sack outlets. I need two sack outlets to like actually get that number. Don't super highly prioritize price of progress or price of loyalty unless you're pretty confident that uh, by the time the draft is over, you'll have at least two sack outlets. Now, if you're sure that you're red, black, middle of pack one, you can assume it's gonna be pretty easy to end up with two sack outlets. But if you're in a spot like where I was, where it's pack three and you still only have one sack outlet, you might wanna prioritize price slightly lower 
because it's looking like yeah, it's going to be a little bit dicey. Do I find a second sack outlet or no? And even if I do, I'm still only going to have two. And as I'll talk about in a second, the stats go up considerably as you have more than that. So you're basically like if it's pack three and you only have one, you're kind of already eliminating the actual top of your range. The expectation, I think, is two plus. And so if you know that you're only getting two and not two plus, it's going to be, you'll, you'll know that it's a good card. You'll know that it's not at its peak. So then the other thing to know, though, is if you have price and you don't get there, since we do see the numbers going up as you play more of them, I do think you might want to, like, it's fine to play price in an aggressive deck that doesn't have a sack outlet, but not always. Like, you, you need to have an aggressive deck where it makes sense. Obviously, like, you know, even these, like, low number of sack outlets decks that was still something that a human chose to do. Like they believed price would be good in their deck. And then their win rate wasn't great when they had it anyway. The, all of this is to say the sack outlets really do matter. And then by the way, so this is four sack outlets, one price, uh, 61%, uh, two price, 61%, three price, 66%, four price, fluke here, uh, 56%, five price, four sack outlets, 65%. And then at five, the numbers, five sack outlets, the numbers get even better. Five sack outlets, we start seeing like 65% for uh, two prices, 65% for three prices, and 71% for four prices. This is a bunch of different small sample sizes. No single one of these numbers should be taken to mean a lot. Most of the different possible combinations, once we get to high numbers of sack outlets, give us really, really high uh, win rate percents. This is to say, yes, price is good, but there's context. When you have the context where you have a lot of sack outlets, you should super highly prioritize drafting prices. When you have prices, you should obviously prioritize drafting sack outlets, but like not all red decks want price, not even all red black decks want price. It's good grain of salt. I would not commit to the idea that price is even the best red common, let alone better than most of the rares or whatever. There will be points where you should prioritize it super highly, but it needs a lot more context uh, and a lot a much more specific deck than most cards do. Usually when I do these, I talk about like, what do you need to see to like choose to draft this? When should you draft it? What are the cards that put you in this? No, that's not what's up. This deck does so well and each of red and black do so well Think of it as, well, I'm probably at least red or black, so like, you know, just try to take red and black cards. But you don't even need to do that, really. Like, if you're just, all right, I have a rough sort of, like, what the good cards are and the bad cards are, and I'm, like, using 17 lands to inform how good cards are. Like, 17 lands is already showing all of the non-red and black cards at, like, greatly deflated game-in-hand win rates because they're played in decks that aren't red and black and those decks win less. So if you just straight up like draft by the game in hand win rate numbers, you'll kind of be guided into red black at a reasonable rate. But then it's just like, well, what would put me here? Just drafting the best card in most of your packs will put you here. I guess the thing that would not put you here is if you drafted by like uh, improvement when drawn or something, which would be a good way to like, if you want to force yourself not to draft red black while still getting some guidance or something, I guess you could try drafting by improvement when drawn. There are, I, I think there are a lot of problems with improvement when drawn. I, I don't recommend it, but it is another way to approach things. I'm not going to get into the whole discussion about that right now. But the, the point is, 
What puts you in red and black is just the fact that red and black's cards are really good, and it's more of a why wouldn't you than a why would you kind of situation. One of the things that I get to when I talk about what puts you in this is I talk about like, oh, well, these are the like really good uncommons. So when you see those, you should take them and draft this. It is still worth talking about the really good uncommons. So regardless of like whether you need one of these really good commons to end up in red, black, you will see these sometimes. You should take them and it's good to understand what uh, more subtle implications of them and stuff are. So the best uncommon is basically a flat tie between Battlecry Goblin and Skullport Skull Merchant. And those cards are pretty different. Like Skullport Merchant is fundamentally defensive and like a value card and a sack outlet, whereas Battlecry Goblin is aggressive. Straight up, it wants to kill your opponent, it wants creatures with high power, it wants to attack. So while these cards are both so good that I would be thrilled to play either one of them in literally any red and black deck. They do suggest different preferences in, you know, how you're drafting and what your game plan is and everything. Honestly, I'm still at the point where to a large extent, I'm basically just like, yeah, let me just like take the best card and try to like feel out matters here more than I'm drafting. Like, okay, now I like really understand this and I know exactly where I want my deck to end up and I'm drafting more for strategy than for power level. For me, at least, as the format goes on and I get more comfortable, I shift more toward drafting for a strategy, less toward drafting for power level. But at the start, I'm going to draft for power level and then kind of like sort out the synergy as I go. Kind of like the fundamental, like you need to understand the rules before you can like violate them in meaningful ways. You know, I'm not necessarily at the point with my own drafting where I'm going to differentiate my picks largely based on whether I started with a Battlecry Goblin or a Skullport Merchant. But hypothetically, I would hope to reach that point. I, I would hope to have a sufficient understanding of like exactly the trade-offs and context and power levels for the cards such that I would draft pretty differently if I started with a Battlecry Goblin versus Skullport Merchant. I think I would be likely to win more often if I had the context to do that perfectly. You know, broadly speaking, Battlecry Goblin wants you to draft more goblins, wants you to prioritize, like, the Hobgoblin Captain and stuff, whereas Skullport Merchant wants you to prioritize, like, removal and treasure making and price of loyalties and play more of an attrition game, potentially, you know, more defensive, more of the top end stuff, because it gives you a treasure to ramp to it, plays like this longer controlling game. Whereas Battlecry Goblin wants you to prioritize more cheap stuff, more combat tricks, get to the point where you're like triggering its battle cry, pumping stuff, killing your opponent. So Red and Black can do all that stuff. It can play all those game plans and it can play them in a pretty fluid way. It's, I guess, kind of cool that the two uh, best commons in the circuit, or best uncommons in the circuit type do lead to somewhat divergent paths. After that, another card that really stands out as, I think, a little bit stronger than some people might realize, kind of like subtly good, Warlock class has the third best stats. Definitely a format where the best cards are considerably better than the worst cards. So like getting card selection to like dig for the best cards plus draw smoothing, plus then this incidental card that just like hangs out and kills your opponent. It's not terribly surprising this card's good, though, you know, better than like all but two uncommons, quite a statement. So anyway, Warlock class, good card. Powerward kill, Black Dragon, Reaper's Talisman. So like Powerward kill, yeah, sure. Obvious premium removal spell, clearly going to be a good uncommon. 
black dragon. Yeah, this is a dragon and a chupacabra kind of effect. Like, of course, that's good. Six mana is worth it for get a 4-4 flyer and kill your opponent's creature. Sorry, the, the dragon's seven mana, not six. But again, it's worth it. Reaper's Talisman is a card that I've seen a lot of discussion about. All of it positive, basically just like, wow, this card's busted. Like, it's a nightmare to play against a really, really strong equipment. I can, you know, put it on my weakest creature, attack. Now, like, I'm draining you for two, so it's pretty hard to race. But you also really don't want to block because you're trading whatever you have for my, like, garbage creature that I equipped. And I'm just going to move it along, move it around next turn, so it's just going to keep doing this. Very annoying to play against if you're trying to block. Also, Reaper's Talisman has some specific uh, synergies. You don't really need to prioritize them, but obviously it's like great with first strike. Not that there's a lot of that, and like it doesn't quite work the way you want it to on the Hobgoblin, because like you generally have to attack with another creature to get first strike there, and then you're not getting the drain effect. The real wombo combo is uh, the Goblin Javelinier, um, the one one that does a damage to a blocking creature, because then that damage has death touch so anything they block it with is going to die and then if they double block they you kill the first thing and then trade with the second thing so you have to just like get two for one and you like risk like they kill a thing and then use a removal spell on your other thing so it's like remarkably problematic to deal with it's like that one one wearing a reaper's talisman there there are other very good uncommons just to walk down the list a little bit without going into too much detail grim wanderer uh it's the five three flash a creature must have died. Card's a little bit unusual, so it might be kind of hard to process. The, the requirement there that a creature died is very much like mitigated by the flash ability. Turns out 5-3 for 2 is very good. Card's strong. Uh, Magic Missile, I should touch on. There was some conversation on Twitter about the comparison between Magic Missile and Dragon's Fire. Stats say they're really close, and that, that checks out. They have, like, different advantages and disadvantages. They they win a comparable amount. I'm not going to, like, settle this debate. I think they're, you know, similarly powerful cards. Ceiling on Magic Missile is higher. Floor is lower. Harder to cast. Sorcery speed. I've talked in the past about how important instant speed is on removal, but also being able to be a two-for-one is really good. They're, they're both great cards. Kalein... Red-black gold card, very strong. Red dragon. All right, Ray of Enfeeblement up next. Ray of Enfeeblement's a tricky card to evaluate. Obviously, you know, if you think of it as like minus one, minus one for black, that would not be a good card. Certainly not a like 59% win rate kind of card, like not a, you know, substantially better than Precipitous Drop or whatever kind of card. Like just instant black target creature gets minus one one the reason i say minus one one is obviously if you just look at it is oh this kills a one toughness creature but sometimes your opponent plays white and then just kills anything also you know it's like a combat trick like if you if your creature fights their creature there's a very good chance that your their creature will not be able to kill your creature after you take away four power from it so there are a bunch of spots where it does just kill something because um, there are plenty of good x1s like the hobgoblin captain or whatever also all the white creatures and then you get also anytime you're in combat when you put all that stuff together for one mana and it turns out it's pretty good effect i guess what's surprising to me though is that ray of enfeeblement actually performs better than burning hands um burning hands being the uh two damage to a creature uh six damage to a green creature red uncommon i would expect burning hands to be a little bit better than ray of enfeeblement turns out ray of enfeeblement does it currently has slightly higher stats they're similar enough that it could just be noise could be that 
black wins slightly more than red. I'm not even sure if that's true. Could be that like curve players are more likely to misevaluate Ray of Enfeeblement in such a way that they don't put it in their deck. And so, like, Burning Hands is played by everyone where only good players play Ray of Enfeeblement or something. Like, you wouldn't need that to happen very frequently for it to skew the stats by this small amount. So, I guess just a little note there that Ray of Enfeeblement has higher stats, but I personally still suspect Burning Hands is the stronger card. Next point I want to discuss. Earth Cult Elemental. I mentioned I want to play a little bit more top end, specifically, like, actual top top end, like 6 and 7 drops rather than some of that mid-top end, like 4 and 5 drops, than I usually would because of treasure existing, especially at red-black, which are the colors that are going to make treasure. And so that like moves Earth Cult Elemental ahead, like 5 drops that might be ahead of it, like the Herald, the 5-mana 4-4 four, four that can drain your opponent by spending a million mana, and the Ogre. Uh, Swarming Goblins is still great. Earth Cult Elemental saw some discussion about it. I think Arilax was talking about how 6 drops in general are good, but not to call Ari out, but he didn't like Earth Cult Elemental. The stats disagree with him. The stats say, you know, that one's actually also good. Specifically, like, its stats are, you know, appreciably better than Bale the Beholder. I know there's some discussion about this. I guess there are some vocal people who have spoken up in Beholder's defense and maybe not in Elemental's defense. They're very similar cards, you know, six mana, six power. Uh, the Earth Cult Elemental benefits from an additional toughness gets it out of range of Paradise Fireball. Beholder has, like, they have different abilities. So baseline, Earth Cult Elemental is better. So for Beholder to be better, it needs to have better abilities. So it can either make your opponent sacrifice an enchantment, or it can make your creatures have menace. These are both really high variance abilities. Like, if you catch one of your opponent's good class cards with Beholder, you're going to be like, wow, the holder's awesome. If you catch Minimus Containment with the holder, you're going to be like, wow, the holder's awesome. Now, first off, Minimus Containment and Charm Sleep both have pretty bad stats. Even among white cards, Minimus Containment does pretty badly. And then that should mean that you should play against those cards at a decreasing rate as people realize they don't necessarily want to be prioritizing putting them in their deck. There are, sometimes you get an enchantment and it's great. Sometimes it even answers a really strong enchantment. It's super great. But then the menace ability, it's like, yeah, there are sometimes board stalls where if, you know, your opponent suddenly can't block very well, they're dead. But again, I think that's a minority of the time. Whereas Earth Cult Elemental, you know, you're just up a card all the time if you roll 10 or above. Um, and then if you roll a 20, it's bonkers. And then if you roll low, you have to sacrifice something and your opponent has to sacrifice something. But like, you have just cast a six drop your opponent maybe has it. When you've cast a six drop that's the top end of your deck, you can generally afford to lose land. Your opponent might not be able to as well. You're like making it harder for them to catch up with the six six you've played. I think, you know, even if all it did was you both always sack a permanent, that would be net positive for you. More than half of the time, it's better than that. Random total outlier thing that has come up for me, teleportation circle on Earth Gold Elemental, really good. When you start making your opponent sacrifice stuff like over and over, they, they run out of stuff to sacrifice pretty quickly. And then obviously also because you're playing the treasure deck, you can often set it up so you you have a treasure to sacrifice. So your opponent's losing like a land and you're losing a treasure, which is obviously much worse than land. When I've done this process in the past, there are some archetypes where like in an aggressive deck, I wanna go like, okay, well what, rather than just like looking at general uh, win percentage, what has the highest opening hand win percentage? And what shocked me 
was that Earth Cult Elemental has the highest opening hand win percentage of any card in red-black. Like when you filter for red-black opening hand only, this might have changed by now or by the time you're, you're seeing this, but when I searched, promise you, Earth Cult Elemental, highest opening hand win percentage. Not like a 3-1 for 2, not a 1-3 that makes a treasure when it hits them, not price of loyalty that is just like really good. Among commons, highest opening hand win percentage, the 6-drop. Now, normally, you don't want six drops in your opening hand. The advantage that you get playing this early over playing it late is greater than other six drops. Because, like, if you can treasure it out and then make them sacrifice something, it's more likely to be, like, really brutal. It's not, like, inconceivable. There's a clear explanation here. If you draw this late, it's ETB doesn't matter very much. If you cast it on turn six or earlier, its ETB is likely to matter quite a bit. So it is... A six drop that's better early than late, early than late, you know, for it, for it to have the highest opening hand win rate, it has to like actually be good, or there has to be just some crazy variance in ball sample sizes. And I'm not saying it's one of those or the other. Those those are two equally likely possibilities in my mind. You know, not exactly equally, but I could easily see it being either one of those things. You don't want to take it highly. You don't want to end up with a lot of six drops in your deck, but. You do want some six drops. I think, you know, playing the first Earth Cult Elemental in most red-black decks is going to be actively good. That's that's really all I'm getting at here. You know, I'm not saying, hey, this is the best card. I'm not saying this is the second coming of Ravenous Lindworm. But honestly, I don't want to close the door on that. There is a possibility that is not totally outlandish that uh, this card might just continue to perform really well and might actually just be like the go-to six drop that you want. Am I confident that that'll happen? No. Do I think it's more likely that it will happen or won't happen? I think it's a little more likely that it won't happen, but totally solid to play with. Now, is it Lindworm where you actually just want to play four of them? I don't know. If you play four of them, you're more likely to have one early and more likely to like chain them and have your opponent sacrifice more stuff they can't afford to sacrifice. And maybe you can like build around this by prioritizing treasures highly to be able to do that. Not ruling it out, just I'm not prepared to commit to that idea yet. So let's wrap that up and turn it over to Twitch chat for questions. I want to um, thank my newest patron over at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. Pedro, thank you very much for the support. And anybody else, again, if you like the podcast, you're finding this useful, interested in getting access to the notes, or just interested in supporting the program, please check out draftingarchetypes.com. Consider it a little bit more deeply. See if that's something you want to do. First question. In Black Red with Treasures, how great is Hexblade? Hexblade has pretty good stats, but I believe that, like Price, people are not putting it in their deck unless they have a good deck for it. So kind of great. Not like great, great. Just like a good two-drop. I think it's a solid card. Nothing to write home about, but you should play it when you have Treasures. How high should we pick splash enablers like wild, etc.? I think not very highly. I, I think very, very low, honestly. Um, like I said, the win percentage for rack for black red splashing is much lower than the win percentage for black red not splashing. And the treasures just like incidentally let you splash a card, so you don't really have to work for it. And the like tap land could hurt you. I have been not prioritizing wilds at all and trying to, you know, I'll splash like a single busted rare, like teleportation circle that i talked about that was a deck where i was just splashing teleportation circle and the white the dragon paladin rare that's busted the three three for three 
in general, before I have something I'm looking to splash, I'm not going to prioritize like Evolving Wilds at all. How many treasure sources do you generally want before playing a double pip splash card? Wow, that's a good question. I don't know, because it really depends on like, what are these treasure sources? Like, because, and like, what am I spending my treasures on? Like, so for example, if you have a lot of deadly disputes, you don't exactly want to count each of them as a treasure source, because so often what you're looking to do with that is like, sack the treasure from the first one to the second one. If you're doing like, I have a bunch of plundering barbarians, like sometimes those are going to make treasures and sometimes they aren't. And then if you have like hex blades that are competing for having the treasure used on them, then that would be like an argument against like you're that means it's less likely that you'll have the treasure. But and then obviously there are questions about like whether you should be splashing the double pip card at all, how good it is. But obviously like this question presupposes that it's worth splashing. But like there's still a question about like well is it worth splashing? Like is it so good that I want to splash it if it's hard or is it like good enough that I'll splash it if it's easy, but I won't want to splash it if it's easy. So I don't really want to play a double pip card with fewer than seven ways to cast it or something, just in general, right? But obviously, you know, this is somewhat muddled by, well, what about the cards that make more than one treasure? I'm still gonna say like, I don't know, seven is a safe-ish ballpark. Thoughts on Jaded Cell Sword? It's not the kind of card that I like to play because I hate spending treasures just in general on anything. I like to just kind of have them. And it's really hard for me to prioritize, do some damage to your opponent, even though that's good. It's hard for me to value it. But like when I've played against it, I've generally been like, oh no, I have to take four damage here. That's a lot of damage. I'm not prepared for this. So as far as like how good is it? I can't really speak to it with any confidence beyond just what the stats say. And obviously it's one that's going to depend a lot on like, do you have stuff like Kalein or other cheap uh, treasure makers? Or incidentally, do you have like Dragon's Matter stuff? Like if you, you know, hit them for four with that, and then it also turns on a dragon fire, and so you're just like getting seven extra damage out of your four drop, that's like a really big deal. But I, I don't have like a lot of nuance to provide for you on like exactly how good that card is other than better than I am inclined to treat it as. Do I have any hope about non-red, non-black drafts being reasonable in this format? Yes, my hope is that by raising awareness about how good red-black is and how everyone should be drafting it, I will encourage more people to draft it, and then we will be more likely to get to a world where these cards are contested enough that other things can compete reasonably. The reason that it is good that powerful rares and mythics exist in Magic, the, the top reason in my mind as a limited player, is that they create an incentive sometimes to draft differently than you otherwise would. Like. I might have a format where I always like to play blue-green, and then I open a busted white card, and it's like, all right, well, this time I guess I'll try to play white. So it's still going to be the case that, like, you know, you'll open a busted mythic or really, really good rare in a different color, and you'll draft a different color because of it. Now, obviously, with red-black's treasure situation, some portion of the time you'll just draft red-black anyway and splash it. It's a whole other issue about why fixing generally isn't this easy. But I, I'm still optimistic that this format can evolve at least a little bit. Um, I do think that the comparison to Ikoria was very good and interesting. I think that this is a spot where early on it felt like, oh, well, you should just force cycling every single time, obviously. And then by the end of Ikoria, that's not how I felt at all. So I'm a little bit optimistic that there can actually be an evolving metagame here where things will change. 
I mentioned the two best uncommons tend to want different game plans. Do I think it's a bad idea to play them together? I think it's absolutely fine to play them together. I mentioned either one of them I would want to play in any deck that is those colors. They're both great. And then I don't care if you're playing them in some kind of like hodgepodge from you know, amalgamator strategies, or you're just like, well, I'm mostly about one of these is doing it and simply playing the other. They're both cards that are good enough that you should just never cut them. All right, this is slightly off topic, but question is, this is the first time I've watched one of these. Do I draft after the podcast? So for anyone who um, is a listener of the podcast and not necessarily a watcher of the stream, if you're thinking about tuning in live, the moment I don't have a regular time that I've announced that I'll be recording those, I do plan to announce my regular schedule for this podcast very soon. But yes, I, I typically stream my regular content after recording. So if you want to come by for the podcast and stay for some gameplay, a vast majority of the time that is happening. Today in particular, it happens to be the case that I drafted immediately before recording and I'm going to be playing games after. Talking about the number of sack outlets, how do I quantify the difference between one-timer like Deadly Dispute or reusable like So unfortunately, uh, this was just a question I asked fine folks at 17 Lands, and then they chose what that meant, and I don't know what they meant. So I personally would be inclined to count Deadly Dispute, uh, the Ghoul, uh, the Tiger Tribe, and Skullport Merchant at least. I don't know what they counted. In practice, there is a difference, but it's like a kind of soft difference, right? Because like if you play the ghoul, your opponent might kill it. Whereas like if you use the dispute, then you can't use it again. So like it's weird. I think it's mostly safe to treat them as like roughly fungible. There's like a bit of hand waving there, but I mean, this is also imprecise that there's a bit of hand waving with all these stats, so whatever. Was Herald of Hadar mentioned already? If not, how I value it. Uh, in red, black, and in general. I didn't mention it specifically except to say that I've been deprioritizing it relative to the six drops because I want to find room in my deck for six drops while prioritizing early drops. And I think that the treasurer makes it like easier to play sixes relative to fives than it would be in other formats. That said, I think if you like don't have the sixes or you have enough sixes, it's fine to play it. I think it's like an acceptable card. It's a worse five than swarming goblins. It's it's fine. It's a like filler playable, nothing exciting. Question about whether I've looked at the win rate for best of one compared to best of three. I haven't. Um, the reason I'm answering this question is just to remind everyone that I do focus on best of one exclusively. I feel like at this point, that's how most people are playing limited because of pursuing ranks on arena. And it's what I play personally because polling my audience in uh, Twitch chat has revealed that it's uh, consistently preferable. They consistently prefer to watch it. So unfortunately, if you're a best free player, you will need to figure out what to modify for your purposes on your own. I think that it's better for me to focus on one thing rather than another just in general, and best of one is uh, what I believe I should be focusing on for right now. Next question, wouldn't it be hard to draft red-black, uh, to always draft red-black if it has the highest win rate? That's the hope. I'm hoping that enough people will draft that it becomes hard. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, draft should be self-correcting. The issue is, it's not like there's just like a few cards that people are sleeping on. The issue is that red and black are both deep with cards that are good and synergistic, and you can be like focusing more on the treasure angle or more on the sacrifice angle, and you can be like more aggressive or more controlling. It's just like 
good at everything all the way down and so like it can support several drafters at a table and there's just like not a lot of reason not to draft it so like it really needs to be like pretty highly contested to like get away from this i think is the issue all right i have now caught up with questions in chat so i think i'm going to wrap it up here so the the key takeaway here is as long as people are going to let you you should draft red black also everyone please stop letting me i would really love to have an excuse to draft the other archetypes enough that i can learn how they work so that i can teach you about those that's what i got this is the best deck right now enjoy it or whatever thank you very much everyone for listening and i will be back later this week with uh the next episode and i'll be announcing um my regular schedule as far as like when i'll be recording these weekly soon i need to sort out what my weeks look like which i haven't quite done yet thank you everyone and again shorter time between this episode and the next episode we're used to apologies for the longer time between the previous episode and this one thanks bye